This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As everyone in the province wraps their heads around the prospect of another lockdown, we turn to who have been in lockdown for the duration. And believe me, it's a lot tougher than what the rest of us are facing. Nursing home residents remain confined to their rooms, buildings, despite the fact that they are vaccinated. Legal experts say it is a gross violation of human rights, not to mention a particularly inhumane manifestation of the ageism that is rampant in our society. I'd like to hear from you if you have an experience, if uh, you know somebody who is being plagued with this, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Maureen Dawson, who is unable to visit her mother in long-term care, even though her mother is fully vaccinated and dying of cancer. Maureen is also a Unifor national representative. And first of all, uh, Maureen, I- I'm so sorry to hear this. Yes, thank you, Libby. Uh, I'm really happy to be here today to advocate for my family, but for other families too who are facing the same uh, issue. It's uh, mind-boggling, actually, that, you know, at this point, my mom is fully vaccinated, She's just recently been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given weeks or months to live. Uh, it's been two weeks since we got that diagnosis. And the only people, my, my dad is allowed to go and see her, but the rest of us are not. And uh, it's, it's unexplainable because you have to be tested to go into the long-term care facility. If they want us to get vaccinated, like my dad did, we will, we'll do whatever it takes, but the answer is just no. And, uh, it's heartbreaking for all of us. Um, you know, it's really heartbreaking. Maureen, I see that you're in the Kingston area. Is your mom yes. as well? No, she's in Toronto. Okay, uh, she's yeah. at Seven Oaks, Seven Oaks Long-Term Care oh. in uh, Scarborough. Yeah. And, uh, sorry, remind me which chain that's part of. Oh, no, that's the community. That's the municipal home. Oh, okay. Uh, it's run by the City of Toronto. So, and there's the staff there is fantastic to my mom. Uh, you know, it's not their decision. And, uh, you know, they, I'm sure they, they would like to tell us that we could come in, but so, they can't. So whose decision is it in this case? Uh, they're saying it's the, it's the public health decision, you know, uh, it's, or it's the government's decision. And they've told us that, you know, maybe uh, at the end of her life, would they may be able to let us in. But, you know, honestly, uh, we want to see her now. It's not fair, not just to us, but to her. I it, mean, it's to not be able to see us. It's it's appalling. Pancreatic cancer is a very devastating disease, um, which I know firsthand. And uh, I mean, it, it's it's appalling, Jane. I mean, to me, this is clearly a violation of human rights. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there there are certain you know exceptions with respect to visitors um, around this, um, and you know the homes. The, they all the homes seem, or public health seem to be looking at those sort of issues. Um, you know, they interpret them all very differently. Um, and uh, because this is a city home, I would actually recommend that she speak to the um, the ombudsman for Toronto, and and maybe that office might be able to help her out. But you know, with respect to the whole issue, is that we've had these directives which have detained people and put them in solitary confinement since March 22nd of last year for over one year, um, many of whom have, you know, been months in their rooms, not having showers, you know, for six months. Um, it's all entirely illegal. Um, it, it's not allowed. Um, you know, even this, you know, the ability of the home to 
detain them in the home is not legal. Homes do not have that detention authority. Um, they're relying on the directives that the Chief Medical Officer of Health have released saying, you know, that not to let residents out. But in our opinion, that actually, he doesn't have the authority to do that under a directive. Okay, he wait, Jane, an- Jane, sorry, I I'm just yeah. want to get this clear. So this is based for, uh, on a directive from the Provincial Chief Medical, Medical Office- Officer of Health, yes. Williams. Yeah, so he, starting in March 22nd, he directed homes using, he's allowed to give directives to homes, uh, to long-term care homes, and they added retirement homes, even though retirement homes are tenancies, but they added that to uh, the legislation to allow him to do that. But the directives he can make are not unrestricted. He can't, he doesn't have, you know, every power in the world under those directives. He could, or the public health office could order people in long-term care not to go out, but they have to use what's called a Section 22 order, and they have not done that. And that order requires them to have um, reasonable and probable grounds for certain things. Um, It allows the person to appeal it, so if they're unhappy with that response, they could appeal it to the Health Services Appeal Board. But instead, they've used this directive, which which is you know, contravenes the charter, let alone the human rights code and a whole bunch of other things, to detain a very specific population, holus bolus, 150,000 people in this province of Ontario, without really having that legal authority, in our opinion. Uh, Maureen, how is the rationale explained to you, especially since residents are now vaccinated? The rationale is just that that's what they've been told by uh, that's the directive they're under, and that even though they, you know, understand the uh, the issue and they, you know, have sympathy for us and empathy, that they cannot change that. And even at the end, you know, when she's uh, likely, you know, just before death, they can't still promise us that we'll be able to get in. And, you know, uh, I, I, I've lost, I don't know how many nights sleep thinking about this. I mean, it's awful, awful. It is It is certainly awful. I mean, Jane, at this stage of things, you know, even hospitals let family members in. They didn't in the first wave, but it's mind-boggling. It, it is mind-boggling, especially since um, there is very clear evidence, given that, you know, the number of um, outbreaks in long-term care have dropped you know, significantly, and homes that do have outbreaks, it's in staff, not in residents. And so, you know, they're claiming this is to keep the residents safe. Well, the residents are safe. They've been vaccinated. This was what they were telling us, is that once, the you know, the residents were vaccinated, everybody would be okay. And yet they're still clinging to this, you know, entirely inappropriate um, uh, directive and saying that, you know, not only can people not come in, but they, you know, residents can't go out. They're still being detained in their room. And it's ridiculous. I mean, the province is going into lockdown. That's because the rest of us are not um, vaccinated. Not the long-term care home residents. They're okay. Um, but they're still under more strict control than the rest of us will be. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, it's been shown that outside is more or less safe to begin with. And it's encouraged. Uh, Maureen, is there any response to that? Well, it's funny because what my, I said to my dad, who is allowed to visit, can, could she come outside to see us? I mean, you know, and she's not really uh, in, in a great condition to do that, but they, they could be possible. So a week or two weeks ago when she had to go to the hospital to get the test, the final test that told us what was going on, she, the nursing home is right near Centenary Hospital, like close. So my dad decided that he would just, they would put her in the wheelchair, walk her across the parking lot to the hospital. And my son, who's her grandson, he went over just to make sure my dad didn't have any issues. So he was outside, but that's the only time she's been allowed outside is to go to the hospital. And he just happened to go so he could stand back six feet and, you know, talk to her for five minutes while she was walking to the hospital. So, you know, but otherwise, no, they don't want them going outside. And 
again, I just, I mean, with this whole thing, I, I, there's been so many families who've been affected in the beginning when the, you know, people were dying from COVID inside and the government kept talking about this iron ring. And now the iron ring is the opposite. It's keeping people who are well, you know, not allowed to go out. Now they should be able to go out. They could loosen it a little bit to, to, to allow for, uh, you know, people to visit, to go outside, to get some fresh air. And I'm not just talking about my mom who's sick, but the people who aren't, who, who've been inside for a year, just to get some sunshine and, you know, vitamin D, anything, to be able to see people. It's just, I, I can't even believe I'm in this position. You know, of course, I'm not the only one, but when it hits you, it's just like, wow, you know. It's, uh, it's like a race against time here. I'm in a race against time, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to win this race. So The other, to me, irony is, so they're keeping residents in despite the fact that they're vaccinated, and they're saying it's a safety issue, but they are not requiring the people who work there to get vaccinated. Yeah, I don't think it's mandatory. It's not uh, mandatory, and there's a very large percentage of them who are not vaccinated. Uh, the last time I looked, it was around 30%. It might be different now, Jane. Yeah, there's a number of issues around the vaccination. Certainly there's issues around vaccination hesitancy with staff. We certainly are still hearing about staff who are unable to, to um, sorry, there's unable to get um uh, vaccines. Um, they're still waiting for vaccines. Um, and there's, you know, there's been issues around the way that it was rolled out for staff. So in some places, um, you know, staff were required to go elsewhere. Or, you know, if you worked the night shift, you had to come in, uh, you know, the next afternoon. And so they haven't made it easy. They haven't, and, and a lot of the homes haven't had the kind of town halls or or individual explanations to staff to make them understand what the vaccines are, et cetera. So I think there's still work to be done in that area so that we make sure that as many of the staff are being vaccinated. But this issue of, you know, you can't do it because the staff aren't vaccinated, well, that, that shouldn't prevent the residents. The residents aren't going to be, you know, it's the staff have been able to come and go over a year. It's time for the residents to go out. They are legally being detained and it shouldn't happen. Is there some kind of legal challenge that you're contemplating, Jane? Well, it, I mean, there has there's been one case that went to the Human Rights um, uh, Tribunal, and it was started last summer, and it was um, a child who lived in a group home, um, and the parents were being prevented from visiting them. Under what legal authority they had, I have absolutely no idea. Um, it was never even clear in this case, but the Human Rights tribunal said it was discrimination on the basis of, of disability and that the parents should be allowed to visit, etc. So um, the problem with the legal process is it is, it is very slow um, and doesn't necessarily get you that sort of quick response that you want. Uh, we're certainly working on different, uh, different avenues to try to get the government to change their mind. We've, I've written to the minister on February 25th. Um, I have had no response from anyone in the government, unfortunately. Um, they're just ignoring it. Maureen? Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, you have to go ahead, Libby. Well, no, there's the same question. Is there anything, what are you trying to do to get this changed? Uh, uh, you know, uh, you're part of Unifor, which is a big union. Yeah. Maybe they somebody yeah. might respond to you. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, we have, uh, you know, we, we represent many people in healthcare, uh, you know, in RPNs and PSWs and other people who work in healthcare facilities. And, uh, you know, um, we, they, we've been pushing the government for so many of the issues that Jane was talking about, about the vaccines, in particular, getting paid time off to actually get the vaccines, having access, the information, just so many, all the, the our Unifor staff who work in those homes, uh, over the last year have, you know, have uh, been, it's been so difficult for them. And yes, you know, I, I honestly, I put the tweet out the other day because I was just frustrated and I've got quite a bit of response from people, which is great. And now, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what am I going to do? Because I spend my day as a national rep for the union. I advocate, I negotiate, I, you know, uh, lobby the government things on on behalf of our members so i know what i had to do but honestly i just didn't have i think either the energy or the focus 
And now that this is happening, I think I will probably figure out what I'm going to do. And, you know, and if people want to join, that's fine, because it's not just our family. Oh, you no. know, it's many, many families. And I think if people just have to understand that at this point, it is inhumane not to be able to go and see my mom. Like, it just is. And it's not helping us, and it's not helping her, and it's not helping my dad either, who does get to see her, but he's the only one. You know, and my dad lives in a retirement uh, a retirement community, and as Jane was talking about earlier, they gave him a hard time lots of times when he wants to leave. He's fully vaccinated, too, to see my mom, but he just says, I'm going, and try and stop me. Honestly, that's what he says. Good because for him. It, you know, <laughs> he's just saying, no, I'm not doing it. And what I told my dad yesterday that I was going to be on the show and, you know, maybe continue to do this fight, I wasn't sure what he was going to say. But he said, no, you have to do it. Like, because it's it's just not acceptable that, you know, it's happening to us. And it, I'm sure it's happening to so many other people and, every day. Uh, I, I thank you for doing this. And Jane, uh, do you have anything else contemplating well, if, if the government is uh, not responding? I mean... Williams does all those briefings, you know, could be asked while he's live on uh, television. But Yeah, well, both the Minister of Long-Term Care and the Premier have been asked questions about this, and both of them have uh, indicated that they are not going to make any changes at this point in time. Um, so we do have to look at the legal avenues. Um, you know, part of the problem is that many people, you have to remember that these people do live in long-term care, and they often are fearful of taking action um, against uh-huh. the home uh, that they live in. And I, I applaud her father. I think that, uh, you know, I, t- I often will tell my clients that they don't have any legal authority to stop you, and the police have no authority to bring you back if you want to walk out and go wherever. So, um, you know, that, that it may be self-help uh, that ends up, uh, you know, fixing this. We, we'll, we'll have to see. Okay, uh, uh, Maureen. Again, I'm I'm so sorry to hear this, and and I hope that you do get to see your mom sometime soon. Yes, thank you. I do too. And thanks for having me on because I, I think it's a really important issue for everybody right now. And we'll keep at it. And Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, uh, we are going to take a break and uh, we're going to come back with another type of threatened legal action against the government on all of this. This one, uh, growing number of people are really angry and frustrated over that four-month interval between a first and second dose that was mandated by the National Advisory Council on Immunization. We will talk about that when we come back. And let me give the numbers because I've certainly been hearing from a lot of people about this. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Boy, I have rarely seen our phone lines get jammed so quickly. And we're talking about a decision that's been controversial from the start. And now there is a threat of legal action. There's a growing backlash against the decision to delay second doses of vaccine for four months, especially for older people. There's no evidence to confirm this is safe or effective. And NACI, the National Advisory Council on Immunization, made this decision based on modeling. No other country has stretched the interval so much. In the UK, there's real-world data to support waiting three months between doses. Uh, I'm not going to give the numbers out again because we have a lot of people to get to who are already waiting. So hang on. Uh, Now we're going to Ian Cooper. He's a lawyer who has issued a notice of claim against both federal and provincial governments. And Michael Sharnert is one of those many people that we have heard from on this topic. Uh, Ian, let's start with you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Libby. So uh, what would a legal basis for challenging this be? Well, uh, without going too far into the weeds, uh, in simple terms, we have a group of people who agreed uh, to receive the, the Pfizer vaccine, 
they signed a consent which said, I've read the vaccine information sheet and agree to, on that basis, receive the shot. They, the vaccine information sheet said in no three places, this is the schedule for receiving your booster, 21 days for the Pfizer shot, 28 days for the Moderna shot, and, you know, spoke of, you know, you need to come back for your appointment. I think made quite clear, uh, I mean, I suppose they could have done it in 24-point font with, you know, uh, capital letters, that it was very important to get the booster shot, and this was when you would be receiving it. Many of the seniors who have reached out to me, uh, but, you know, my two clients in particular, uh, asked at the vaccination clinic, because they had been reading about shortages and delays, and said, are you sure that we have a firm appointment uh, and they were assured at the clinic site that, yes, they did have a firm appointment for three weeks hence. March 15th rolls around. The province opens up its registration portal. And suddenly all of these seniors, uh, and my clients included, are informed that their scheduled boosters have been changed uh, to sometime in the next four months. Some people have actually received appointments. Some people were just canceled and left in limbo. I've heard from people who didn't know that their appointment was canceled because they're not on email all that often, showed up at a vaccination site in the cold, in the rain, and waited around to be informed that, sorry, your appointment was canceled. So this is a basic situation where these people agreed to receive the treatment based on certain conditions. They were given oral and written assurances that the conditions would be honored, and they have not been. And so there's issues of collateral contract, detrimental reliance, medical battery. And in terms of remedies, uh, without going too far down the rabbit hole, uh, the province you know, can be compelled to give them what they're seeking, which is their second shot in a timely manner. We've got a ticking clock, so our hope is that both levels of government simply say, look, we did this in the fog of war, we made a mistake, This, you know, the science is clearly pointing towards the elderly and immunocompromised needing to get that booster, or else they won't have a good immune response, and fix the problem, in which case they could render it moot. Uh, Michael Shiner, so what are your concerns? How old are you, and did you get that first dose? Uh, thanks, Libby. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a 77-year-old uh, married man living uh, living in Toronto. Uh, it's it's just not my concerns that I that I wish to reflect, and I'm I'm not really calling about myself. Okay, yeah, but be... but we're 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 interested in yourself. That's why we have you on. So why don't you well, tell okay, me about your I'll, situation? I'll tell you. I'll, I'll I'll tell you very clearly that number one, this decision was a political decision. It was not a medical decision, and it was simply based on the fact of the lack of vaccine. That's why, in this particular case, Canada is is a complete outlier. There is no other country in the world that has changed the prescribed scientific protocols. Because you have a political problem, it does not give you license to change the science. And that's exactly that's exactly what we've done. The World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, Canada's chief scientific advisor, let alone the manufacturers of Pfizer and Moderna, have not endorsed what Canada has done. Okay, Michael, have, Michael, we've used, Michael. Can I just make one, point, one quick point? We've used the excuse. You've heard from you've heard from Premier Ford and you've heard from the Prime Minister that we're going to get vaccines into people's arms and we're going to give them some measure of protection. They cannot tell you what protection I will have at the end of four months. They cannot tell me what protection I will have after the second dose of vaccine is given at that time. And your listeners should know that NACI, which met very recently, had extensive objection within its own committee to the continuation of this policy. 
Okay, Michael, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Let's go to Gary in Thornhill. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having me. So what's your situation? How old are you? Well, Uh, Libby, I'm 80 years old. I'm a cancer survivor. I have COPD. I've got AFib, atrial fibrillation, and I got high blood pressure. So my immune cell, I'm feeling fine, by the way, but my, my, uh, my problem is, is that I'm doing everything that I can, like thousands of other seniors like myself, to try and, and, and stay away from, from, well, to follow all the protocols that have been set out, you know. Love to hug my grandkids. I haven't been able to do that in over a year. Um, I've been told that I have to wait for four months for my second shot. And as Michael said, I said, uh, my, 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 my efficacy is, is dwindling uh, for every day beyond the 21st to 28th day that the manufacturers themselves are willing to, to put as an expiry date on their, uh, on their uh, vaccines. Uh, it, it's very frustrating for me. As I say, I'm doing everything I can, but the government is putting me in a very, very compromising position. And I feel that I'm losing control of my own ability to fight this disease uh, and fight the government at the same time. It doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, Ian Cooper, I mean, what about the argument uh, that there's simply not enough supply to go around? I mean, they made this decision, presumably, to get a first dose into people, uh, as many people as possible. Uh, Does government have the right to do that? Well, well, so I think we're talking about three separate groups of people. Uh, if we're talking about, I'll give you the easy one first. Young, healthy people, uh, where the evidence seems to suggest there was a CDC study that spoke about 80% efficacy in working age adults. And uh, I believe it was a healthcare setting. And that's from the first shot. Well, that's very comforting if I'm a working age adult, which I am. And And if I am in a position where I can get that protection, I may make an informed decision to say, you know, either I can stay working from home and limit my social contacts and wait until supply opens up, which will be after the U.S. is done vaccinating its population sometime in the summer, or I can go and get my one shot now and participate in what is an experiment. And Canada is the only country in the world that's doing it, this four-month experiment. Exactly. Right, but do they do they have uh, do they have the right to do that? So, so, so they do. If people are giving their informed consent, it may not be a good public health decision, but it's certainly defensible, and I think it may be a good public health decision. The next basket of people are people who are older, have no other choices, are in the highest risk group, probably should be getting that second shot in a timely fashion, and I think they should because they're at the greatest risk and they get the least benefit from the first dose. But again, if they're giving their informed consent, then, you know, we're having a policy conversation. The group of people who I'm talking about, are, and this is my clients, are people who said, I would not have gotten this first shot. I would have waited till this summer so that I could have gotten it in the manufacturer-approved timeline. But you promised me multiple times in writing and orally at the vaccination site. Remember, the vaccination site is a public body. This isn't some, you know, private hospital that the province can pass the buck to. And you assured me that my appointment was firm. On that basis, I took the first shot. And then you just changed your mind and rewrote the conditions of my consent. And under no circumstances is that either good public policy, fair, or legal. And so the government has, for that third group, clearly committed an act of medical battery, and it clearly can fix this problem by simply giving the people who got that first dose in reliance on the booster getting their second dose. It's the easiest thing to do to simply grandfather for that group. And I think, candidly, they should do this for all of the elderly people as more evidence piles up to say, you will get your booster in a timely manner. You are a special case. And, and, and we also have to keep in mind, these are people who 
are, you know, like Gary, living with medical conditions, but managing to stay out of long-term care. And we know how hard that was hit during the pandemic. So it seems to me really strange to be saying if you're a senior living with medical conditions at home and all of those challenges, and you may need support from friends and family to help you actually, you know, with your life and your groceries and taking care of your medical needs, well, we're going to treat you like a 35-year-old who has no medical conditions and maybe can benefit. Okay. I'm going to go to Norma in Guelph. Hi, Norma. Um, I'm, I'm living in Guelph, and the health unit here is doing a wonderful job of um, getting the vaccines out. However, I was a little bit appalled after I received my booster about a week and a half, not my booster, but my uh, Your first shot. Yeah, the first shot about a, a week and a half ago um, when I inquired on my way out about an appointment for the booster, I was told that it could be up to six months before I would receive the booster and that I would get a call from the health unit with an appointment somewhere between four and six months. Wow. I've never heard yes. that. Yes. Uh, are you... um, and I'm not the only person who has heard this. Um, some people I've talked to have received this directly from the employees in the health unit um, office. We'll have to look into that. Four months was bad enough. Um, Yes, I I just thought I would uh, make people aware of this, and um, I I think that they should be making an effort to uh, ensure that people um, who are seniors are getting their second uh, dose a little bit earlier than four months. I, I don't think this is scientifically sound. Okay. Norma, thanks for your call. Okay. Thank you. Okay, we uh, have a very short time left. Ian Cooper, very quickly, I mean, legal processes take time. So, uh, you know, wh- what's your game plan now to try to get this uh, in a four-month time or in less than four-month time period? Well, so what we're doing right now is encouraging everybody who has concerns to write to their MP and their MPP, let them know they view this as a joint provincial and federal responsibility, no blaming each other, no political football. You're all in this together, folks. And this issue needs to be solved. And I'd encourage everybody who feels strongly about it to do that as a starting point. Going forward, I've had a ton of phone calls and emails and At some point very soon, I need to sit down with my clients virtually and have a discussion with them about at what point we proceed to litigation. My sincere hope is that the province and the federal government change their guidance and give these people their boosters uh, as they deserve them. If they don't do that, the next step will be going to proceed to litigation, which will be Again, it'll be my client's decision as to whether or not they want to join up with others in a class or a group proceeding. And at that point, we have some ideas about how we can expedite this. Uh, so we're going to continue to fight the good fight. But my sincere hope is that this gets resolved. And as I said, that the government makes our claim moot by giving people what they want and what they were promised. Okay. Ian Cooper, thank you so much for that. We will uh, stay on top of this. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Right. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, uh, as everyone now knows, we're expecting news about uh, another lockdown that's going to start, I think, Friday midnight. Uh, So uh, we will get the scoop on that. We'll talk to some people who work in hospitals and the situation in hospitals is the reason for this. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have a couple of bits of breaking news on the AstraZeneca vaccine. So first of all, it's just been approved in the United States where it hadn't been. And second of all, those one and a half million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine that are on loan from the United States can now be administered to Canadians. And that is following Health Canada's assessment of the batch that was delivered. So that's good news. And also 
in the meantime, the province has designated uh, a lot more pharmacies to uh, give out those AstraZeneca vaccines. So that one is going to be more available almost immediately. Now, in the meantime, we're expecting to hear from the Premier in about an hour to get the official word that the entire province is heading back into lockdown, or at least a version of it. It comes after dire warnings from our hospitals that their ICUs are full and their systems are at the breaking point. This morning, we also heard the latest modeling, which finds that with the new variants, People are twice as likely to end up in ICU if they are infected. And we're now seeing younger people with serious disease. And the modeling also warns that if the trends continue, we could see 6,000 cases a day by the end of April. Let me give you the numbers again. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 866 740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Dr. Susie Hoda, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Amal Verma, a staff physician in general internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Libby. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's begin with Dr. Hota. Um, is is this kind of uh, good news? The hospital said this is what was necessary, and apparently it's what we're getting. Is that your reaction, Susie? Well, you know, I, I guess it all depends on what the restrictions are that are going to be announced uh, in under an hour. Um, you know, we've been in Toronto, at least, in some form of lockdown for many months now, since the end of November. And yet we're still seeing rises in cases and we're still seeing increases in hospitalizations and ICU admissions. Um, and so some pretty concerning trends, which, you know, implies that what we really need to do is step up our game uh, with these public health restrictions. Yeah, you know, I was wondering the same thing. Dr. Verma, because uh, from what I could see about the early reports of what what the province is announcing, it, it looks pretty much the same as what we've got going now. It, it looks like they might uh, close down eating on a patio, which just started. But, uh, you know, everything else, including non-essential retail, will be open with reduced capacity. And all those people working in essential workplaces will be still working in essential workplaces, many of them without even sick days. Yeah, Libby, I'm really glad you raised the essential workers point there. You know, I just came off of a week of attending on our inpatient uh, unit. Um, and one of the things we're seeing, which you really mentioned right at the beginning, was, you know, rising COVID cases among younger people. It's more severe. They're coming in sicker. And a lot of the younger people who are coming to hospital have acquired the infection from their workplaces, right? And unfortunately, also because this new COVID-19 variant is more transmissible, specifically that B117 variant that is taking over, um, they're passing it on to their family members who are also coming in sick. And so, you know, I think we really need to be, as Dr. Hoda indicated, step up our game from a public health perspective specifically thinking about where, who are the people at highest risk? What are we doing? What do we need to do differently? And I think those essential workers, we really need to think about how we can reduce transmission in workplaces and support those people to prevent that kind of spread, because otherwise we're not going to be able to get, a, get control of this thing. Uh, Dr. Hota, what's going on in the ICU at UHN or the ICUs? Well, ICUs are seeing numbers of COVID-19 patients that we haven't seen so far in this pandemic. Across the province, there are 430 patients with COVID-related critical illness. So it's important to realize it's not just the acute phase of the illness that's important. It's, it's the fact that people end up in the ICUs for a prolonged period of time. And that's, you know, about a quarter of the beds that we have available in ICUs within the province. And what worries me the most is the rate of increase. So, you know, with 43 new patients coming in over the last 24 hours, that's a lot of people that new cases of COVID-19 coming into the, uh, into the RICUs. So, you know, this is the real bottleneck in the system. Uh, we have, you know, some physical capacity. We have you know, the equipment to care for people, but I really worry about having the people to care for our patients in the ICU setting. Um, and we're seeing that across the board in the province. 
my hospital, we, we see some of the sickest patients and those that require, you know, the absolute top level of uh, support in intensive care units. And we're seeing that increase too. And younger people requiring that kind of care. Right. And uh, uh, I forget the name of that specialized care, but it's specialized machinery that's not necessarily available everywhere, right? Correct. We, it, we call it ECMO, but it, it, right. it, it sort of it requires specialized training um, and a, a very kind of, I guess, a, a unique setting for, for people to get that kind of treatment. And you can only expand the capacity so far. And, and like I said, I think the big rate limiting step here is the people to actually do this work. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Verma, I mean, what you're what I'm hearing from both of you is that something has to be changed or the lockdown has to be stepped up. But do you have a specific idea of what is necessary? Yeah, I mean, I think the the major reflection from those of us on the front lines in the acute care sector in the hospitals is we're in a worse position now at the beginning of this third wave than we were at the beginning of the second wave when the province imposed a fairly uh, widespread lockdown that included things like, you know, alerts out to people's phones and a stay-at-home order and things like that. I think it is, you know, if we've learned something from the last year, it's the need to act swiftly, act aggressively and quickly with respect to public health restrictive measures. And uh, that means that maybe we can be in lockdown for less long. Um, so I would like to see swift and aggressive uh, 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 interventions, acknowledging that, of course, some people are really harmed by those. And I would like to see us also support the people in retail and other sectors who lose their jobs or who are having trouble paying rent, you know, and making sure that those that those people, can, you know, don't suffer and bear the brunt of this virus on that end. But honestly, our hospital sector is at, is at a breaking point. And not only, and as Dr. Hoda mentioned, it's not only the physical capacity, it's the number of people, but it's also the exhaustion of our frontline healthcare workers. You know, we've been at this for a year now. Early on, there was a lot of adrenaline and enthusiasm and support from the communities, right? We were having those Everyone was cheering people on at seven o'clock and it's kind of worn into this, you know, we're all exhausted uh, from from the pandemic and especially those working on the front line. So I think we have to acknowledge we're in a much worse position in the hospital sector now than we were even in December. And our public health intervention has to be proportionately, I think, more more strong. Uh, Dr. Hoda, do you have uh, anything concrete that you think should be happening? I mean, uh, again, we're still going to have non-essential retail open, uh, 25% capacity. I'm not sure that that's, you know, that that is where any transmission was happening, but it, it seems to be happening from essential services. And that's a, there's a, that's a pretty wide, you know, um, a lot of the things that are designated as essential services, uh, you know, maybe aren't entirely essential. I think that's exactly it. There are some essential businesses and essential services that will have to stay home. We need to get food. We need to get our pharmaceuticals. Uh, there are important things that will have to remain open. I think it's really looking at critically at what is truly designated as essential now. So I, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, I, I don't, think we should be having as many, um, you know, retail um, venues open, places where people can actually be indoors together. That's one thing that we need to target. And that's for the safety of those going into those uh, businesses, but also those who work there and coming back to where we see transmission occurring, where we see outbreaks occurring. We need to protect people better. And I think alongside that, you know, if we can do whatever we can to accelerate vaccination rollout, to all of these individuals, uh, you know, that the story is kind of changing in front of us. And we've really focused on protecting our, our uh, older Canadians and, and those who are, you know, most vulnerable in the earlier ways. And I'm glad that we've been focusing on that. But we now need to think, too, about where, you know, a lot of the transmission is occurring and have all those tools in place to support individuals so that they can work safely, uh, which includes vaccination, along with other things like sick leave, sick paid sick leave and such. Well, uh, you know, frankly, uh, we haven't been that successful in protecting our older population. Uh, the, the, what happened in long-term care, particularly in the second wave, uh, is appalling. 
uh, now people in long-term care and retirement homes are vaccinated, but, you know, uh, do either of you have any insight? Uh, you know, when vaccinations opened up to older people in the community, a lot of those appointments are going begging. And I, I just heard of a statistic that 75,000 older people in the community are homebound, which would explain that. Is there anything else? Because from, you know, we serve an older population here, and I don't think that vaccine hesitancy is an issue with older people. So do either of you have any more insight on why there isn't more take up? I mean, I, I think, think you make I'll go a, ahead, oh. please, for Dr. Hoda. You go first. <laughs> well, I was going to reiterate what you did say. There are definitely some physical barriers um, to getting to the vaccination centers. And, you know, where we've piloted in some areas, uh, more mobile type models of administering vaccine, it's been wildly successful. And I think we do need to try and get out to those people now who have tried and have had some time to try and figure out how, how to get there, but just can't do it. Um, and so I think that that is an important strategy. Um, in terms of other kind of vaccine hesitancy, I, I don't really know if that is a player. I, I honestly cannot say that that, to my knowledge, has been well studied, but maybe Dr. Verma has more information on that. Dr. Verma, go yeah, ahead. I was, thanks. I was going to, I was going to uh, say that in addition to the physical barriers, um, there are, of course, I think there have been some logistical and technological barriers. I think there is a lot of confusion around where you can get vaccinated, when you can get vaccinated, and maybe who's eligible. I think, Libby, the role of programs like yours in educating and informing people about that is so valuable, and thank you for the work you're doing in that regard. Um, you know, booking appointments online is not the easiest thing for everybody. So I think those are the kinds of challenges that we really need to overcome now are those logistical uh, barriers to really get it out there. I I agree with Dr. Hoda. I don't have precise details regarding, uh, our, you know, our, our vaccine hesitancy, although I think that the uh, sort of recent public polling suggests that up, uptake and, and willingness to get the vaccine is, you know, at, at all-time highs for this thing. So I would agree with you that I think it more is on the area of logistical barriers than it is uh, sort of population hesitancy to get the vaccine. Well, right. And what I was saying that it, I know there's hesitancy, but I don't think it's among older people who are clamoring for this, but it, you know, it hasn't been easy for them. Uh, and the mobile, I think that what you said, Dr. Hota, that those pilot projects that are, that have started to vaccinate people, to take the vaccines to them have been, incredibly successful. And I guess we're not that good at scaling things up. Uh, well, now people are also uh, talking about whether the people in the most dangerous areas, um, especially here in Toronto, are the ones getting vaccinated versus those who live in neighborhoods where there isn't that much transmission. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's an important consideration to, to make, like we should be prioritizing, right? And when we're prioritizing, a scheme was created to, to target people who are most vulnerable from the harms of COVID-19. But I think as part of that, you, you do also have to consider where is it circulating most and who are those at greatest risk of being exposed within those groups. So, you know, I'm all in favor of, of trying to do that. I, I do understand that, you know, we're trying to be equitable across the, the country and that may not be very palatable, but if we think about how we want to slow transmission uh, and eventually stop transmission across this country, it really needs to target those areas where we're seeing the most um, transmission. And what about in the province? People are saying, you know, why, why are we sending vaccine to Kingston? Yeah, I mean, we don't want to neglect any area. Eventually, we have to get coverage everywhere. But I, I think maybe when we talk about proportions of what are allocated to the different areas, um, we do have to think about that proportionality for sure. And, um, you know, the, the other part of it, too, is we're at a point where we're having to think about public health restrictions across the entire uh, province because we recognize that, you know, you can't get too granular in, ter in terms of rolling things that regionally um, people move. And, and there's that consideration as well when you kind of develop these policies about how much you're going to allocate for vaccines. You have to take that into consideration, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that is one of the things that might change. Uh, I, I have a, f a final question, sort of hesitancy. I started this with some breaking news on AstraZeneca. 
And I'm wondering if you think of all the back and forth on that is going to affect the take up of that particular vaccine. And, and what would you say to people? I mean, I've even heard from people saying, oh, wow, we had a first dose of AstraZeneca and now we're worried. Um, Dr. Verma? Yes, I think it, I think you're right that people are worried. I've had family members contact me and say, you know, should I wait for a Moderna or Pfizer vaccine rather than AstraZeneca? I think what we've learned about the AstraZeneca process is that this is actually a, a, a bit of a success story in some ways of detecting rare events um, and a failure story in terms of the way it's been communicated to people, right? And I think you know, that's part of just people moving really quickly with the pandemic. But what, here's what we know about the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's effective. It's very, very effective at preventing death or hospitalization from COVID-19, nearly 100% or 100% in, in, the, in the clinical studies at pre- it, preventing those severe complications. And it has now, we believe, a very rare side effect um, of having blood clotting. We we haven't seen that side effect yet in Canada. I think it occurs at a rate of about one in 100,000 people. We've had about 300,000 or even more receive the AstraZeneca vaccine in, in Canada, perhaps a lot more in, in Ontario, and, and no one has yet had that uh, event, but it's probably a real but rare risk. And so in older people who are at much higher risk of COVID-19 and suffering its severe consequences, the risk-benefit is overwhelmingly in favor of taking the vaccine. And so my advice to my friends and family members is take the first vaccine that's offered to you, including AstraZeneca. Okay. Uh, Susie Hota, Dr. Susie Hota, I'm going to give you the last 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I I think we're at a really vulnerable point in the pandemic right now, and we need to step everything up. That means public health restrictions, reducing your contacts with other people, and also getting vaccinated. And for those who are really um, kind of sitting still on the fence about what to do with it, I completely agree with everything that Dr. Verma has said about getting the first vaccine that is offered to you. And uh, this this is a time-dependent thing that uh, we need to act on now. So really hope that people feel comfortable with that message now. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Susie Hota, Dr. Amal Verma. Happy long weekend. Happy Easter. If you are celebrating, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much. And to you. Thank you. And Free For All Friday is coming up with Jane Brown guest hosting tomorrow, the original, the best Free For All Friday. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.